Hey, Flatlanders. Welcome back. I'm one of your hosts, Tana. And I'm your other host, Lindsay. And we've got a really interesting topic for you today. We're going to be getting into uh, kind of a foodie episode, I guess you could say, if you are of a, a certain mentality. So today we're going to be talking about scavengers and carry-on. So we're going to define what is a scavenger, what is carry-on, and give examples of common Kansas scavengers. We'll also dig into their role in our ecosystem and explore some of the threats to our scavengers and any of those special adaptations that scavengers possess for eating, spoiler alert, dead things. So with that, we're going to jump right in and Lindsay's going to introduce our guest. Yeah, so we are joined today by a very special guest, Deidre Kramer, who is a fisheries and wildlife biologist with the Ecological Services section at KDWP. And I will let Deidre tell us a little bit more about herself. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Kansas um, along like the Decatur County and Norton County border. Uh, We grew up on a farm, I was always outside, um, taking care of livestock, uh, flipping rocks, looking for wildlife, flowers, anything that I could find. Um, and so I've always had an interest in the outdoors, and that definitely led me down the path of, you know, studying biology. So, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your career. What have you done in the past? How long have you been in this role? First off, I'll say I started um, my biology career as a undergrad in at Fort Hayes State University in um, 2012. And I basically focused my um, biology efforts, if you will, um, in botany. So I focused on bot, uh, plant anatomy, uh, plant physiology. And uh, when I graduated in the fall of 2016, I decided I wanted to continue my education. And I had more of an interest in Kansas wildlife um, and more ecosystems and conservation based. Uh, And so that kind of led me straight into, you know, my graduate research. And I investigated uh, the spatial ecology and population demographics of the ornate box turtle population at Quivira National Wildlife Refuge. And then in 2019, um, I I was applying for jobs. I was getting ready to graduate. And I applied to be the director at the Pratt Education Center and Wildlife Museum um, here in Pratt. And so I was in that position for almost three years, and I've always wanted to be a wildlife biologist. And eventually the opportunity came up that I could work with non-game species, and that's like my jam. And so um, I literally just started my new position with ecological services in February. So um, a a newbie. Yay! Yeah. Well, congratulations on that role. And Seriously. I have to say, in that three years that you were at the Education Center, which flew by, you did an incredible job, made such an impact, and that place was looking spick and spam. Anybody that walked in the doors there, you probably got to chat with Deidre or some of her staff, see the incredible things she had done to improve that facility. So I just want to take the opportunity to say you rock. You did awesome. It's super great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I I really tried to put, you know, everything I had into that position. And yeah, that's really nice to hear that people appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah. And I'm glad that you moving on just meant you moving on to somewhere with us still. (laughs) ESS now. We're glad we got to keep you. Yeah, thanks. Me too. It's a good gig. So good deal. All right. Well, let's jump right into it with scavengers and start out with what the basics. So what is a scavenger? So a scavenger is like any organism that uh, feeds on dead or decaying organic biomass. Um, And we'll just kind of, you hinted at carry-on, we'll just go ahead and define that here too. Carry-on is um, any rotting or decaying flesh, and that is what attracts a lot of scavengers. Um, And scavengers really only consume organisms that have died from other causes. So they aren't like predators. They don't go out and kill the the animals themselves they're usually more opportunistic and find the dead animals or the carry-on using special adaptations and so there uh, a lot of scavengers are actually uh, facultative so they they eat on other um, organisms or plant material not just dead animals the most interesting animal um, in my opinion that's a scavenger are vultures Um, And that's something I'll talk about more as we go on. Uh, But a lot, that's like the only vertebrate scavenger, like obligate scavenger, um, like in the world. So they're super interesting to me. And that's like the key 
critter you think of when you think of a scavenger you think of those vultures with their naked heads and like you said we'll talk about that more yeah, later yeah mm-hmm. we're just given those little hinty like you know like tasty tidbits oh, so tasty <laughs> okay so you mentioned scavenging and that is uh consuming animals that have already passed on and when i think about that that seems like there would be some really obvious benefits there as far as like energy expenditure not having to go out and like track down an animal and um be a predator and harvest that critter that animal's already dead living there is it like an energy savings benefit yeah definitely um you have to think about it like sometimes when i talk to at the education center we talked about this a little bit and i like to take things back and think about it in an anthropogenic or human sense we don't really think about energy expenditure um, as far as getting food we kind of have worked that out of our um, living style But it takes energy for us to drive to the grocery store. It takes energy to walk around the grocery store, to make money, to buy for those groceries. All of that is energy. And when you take it back and look at it like a predator sense, they're looking at that as like, I have to run and catch this animal. And that's going to take a lot of energy. So you have to consume enough energy to be able to go out and catch your next meal. If you can cut that out of your day and not use that energy, you get more energy at the end. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think that goes back to the facultative scavengers. Um, If you can find a dead organism that's, you know, not so far gone, that it's still fairly fresh meat, why wouldn't you eat it, you know? Um, And so you're saving energy and you're gaining more out of it and something else did the hard work for you philosophical food for thought question are human beings simply scavengers but in an organized fashion i mean that's a good point right you know we go to grocery stores there are dead animals we take them and we eat them yeah (laughs) we you know we were gatherers and hunters so i'm sure we scavenged as well especially you know you think about our our ancestors that started in africa and asia I'm sure they were were fighting with lions and, you know, the hyenas to try and get some of that dead carry-on that, you know, well, maybe not carry-on because we we probably wouldn't eat decaying flesh, but freshly dead organisms that we could harvest. Yeah. So let's talk about why we don't want to consume decaying flesh. And I think to our listeners, you're thinking, hmm, that's a no-brainer. I've got that figured out. But what are some of the adaptations that scavengers have that allow them to be able to eat that meat? Yeah, so um, let's go into like, let's talk about turkey vultures. I think that's one that a lot of Kansans are going to immediately jump to. So um, adaptations uh, specifically to eating um, dead flesh, uh, you have to think about uh, their digestive system. So vultures actually produce um, really acidic and specialized stomach acid that is going to help protect them from any um, buildup of uh, toxic bacteria or, you know, that decaying flesh, you really think of it as being slimy and disgusting and they, they can actually uh, eat it and not get sick from it. Additional uh, adaptations that they have, uh, a lot of people think of turkey vultures and the bald head. Um, and the reason they're called turkey vultures is they resemble turkeys, which is, you know, something that when you say it out loud, it seems pretty obvious, but I don't know that people make that connection. And there is a reason for the bald head. Um, so when you're thinking about your, you're tearing into a dead animal and you're going to be tearing stuff apart with your beak, dead flesh is going to be kind of flying around. And so you don't want to have that stuck into your, by your eyes, by your mouth and have that decaying flesh, like rotting on your skin. Um, that's just going to bring disease and, you know, a bunch of other issues. So they actually evolved to have bald heads uh, to help eliminate that factor. Um, the other really interesting adaptation that I think a lot of scavengers have is really keen eyesight and smell. Um, and so turkey vultures can often be seen like riding the wind currents and they, uh, I think they call it kettling. When they rise into the uh, columns of air, the warm air that's rising into the atmosphere, and so during that time, they're they're using their senses and kind of preserving energy. Again, going back to that energy, they can ride those air columns 
all day and use very little energy. Um, and so during that time, they're uh, kind of seeking or scouting the the landscape, looking for that dead those dead organisms. And I read that they can uh, find carry on less than 12 to 24 hours old and over one mile away with those senses. Like how impressive is that? That's pretty cool. That's incredible. Yeah. That, so like they have, uh, I was also reading that they, turkey vultures have some of the largest olfactory systems of all birds. And so that's, that's part of uh, their adaptation to find their meals. Yeah. Um, and going back to the super strong stomach acid and you know, they use those talons and their feet to step on those dead organisms and turkey vultures will actually, um, vomit on their own feet to kill off bacteria and stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was another thing. I just have little odd facts about turkey vultures and that was fascinating. They are. Um, so the other thing that they do, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Lindsay, but they also defecate on their legs during hot summer months to help cool them themselves off, Mm -hmm. which as humans, just like (laughs) Megan over there, just already just kind of cringing like, Oh, that's disgusting. But it's, it is, but it's super efficient and amazing. Yeah. And when you think about it, birds don't have the same kind of cooling off systems that humans do. We sweat, uh, cool air evaporates the water. It cools our bodies down. Birds do not have that option. So they have to take advantage of every system that they have at their, uh, disposal. And yeah. uh, that's just one way that they keep themselves cool on those 110 degree Kansas days out in the middle of the prairie. Yeah, exactly. And um, speaking of vomiting, they don't only vomit on their legs. They also vomit uh, on predators or any other animal that will that is threatening them. Um, the hypotheses behind that, and it might be more than a hypothesis now, is that they uh, they're using that foul smelling acid and the dead meat to like to deter the animal that is uh you know aggravating them and it's also to kind of help lighten the load um so they can fly off faster oh yeah pro tip vomit on your enemies yeah i mean who who wouldn't want to do that yeah that is so interesting. So I think turkey vultures are the number one critter we think of in Kansas when we're talking about scavenging. But Deidre, are there any other uh, Kansas scavengers that you want to mention on the podcast today? Yeah. Um, another cool one that I really uh, like um, is the American burying beetle. Lindsay's super excited. There's joy in They're the room. They're so cool. <laughs> so um, they are one of the largest species of its genus in North America. So the carrion beetle. The really interesting thing that I find is the beetles use chemical receptors on their antennae to detect the dead meat or the carrion. Um, and their receptors are so sensitive that the beetles can detect a carcass, like carcasses signal from a long distance and is very quickly. Um, so kind of like the vultures, they have that keen sense of, quote, smell, if you will. They can detect those chemical uh, signals that are coming off of the, the carcass. And what they do with it is they will actually feed on the dead carcass, um, but also they uh, use them during their mating uh, ritual, if you will. And so what they'll do is if they find a carcass that is large enough um, a bunch of burying beetles will actually divulge, like diverge onto the carcass and they will battle it out between, uh, like amongst themselves. And the largest male and the largest female are the ones that are going to use that carcass and they're going to go through their mating rituals. So what they do is they will move the dead animal and they'll actually bury it in a suitable site. Within the nesting chamber, after they've buried the carry-on, Uh, They prepare it um, by removing any hair or feathers off of the surface of the dead body. And then they also coat the carcass with secretions from their mouth and anus. And this acts as like a preservative or you could think of it as like an embalming fluid and it just keeps it from rotting too fast. And so after they do all this prep work and kind of, quote, get the baby chamber ready, if you will, um, they, the male and female mate, and within 24 hours, the female will lay her eggs near the prepared carcass. Um, grubs will then hatch like three to four days later, and they're actually raised for and cared for by the parents. We think of insects as just kind of laying eggs and walking off. They actually put a lot of work into their offspring. 
Um, and so for the next six to 12 days after the grubs have hatched, the parent beetles will eat the carrion and regurgitate it and and put it the dead flesh into the mouths of their the grubs or the larvae. And um, this goes on until the larvae begin their pupation. And then within like 48, 60 days after that, they uh, emerge as fully grown adults. And so it's so cool to me, the adaptations and the evolution to use um, a carcass that in a way that a lot of other insects or animals aren't using it for. Well, how convenient too, to live in your, in your food source, basically. I mean, it's like right out your window. You can take a bite of your wall. Yeah. That floats your fancy. How amazing would that be? Just have like a candy wall and just cheese. I think, (laughs) gosh, so I think of like the breakdown of this carry on of these carcasses, rotting flesh, and my brain automatically goes to the role in our ecosystem and how important that is. Can you talk to that a little bit more, Deidre? Yeah, so scavengers um, really play the role of the natural cleanup crew uh, or the natural sanitation service. I read that one and I really liked that. that phrase, the sanitation service. Um, So they play a fundamental role um, by removing decaying organisms. Um, So you think of a lot of times we go to decomposers when we think about getting rid of like dead material, organic material, whether that be animals or plant material. But I think scavengers play a, a critical role in that initial, you know, harvesting of that, those dead animals or organisms. Um, And you also have to think a lot of scavengers, uh, I mean, your insect scavengers and stuff, they can't move large distances, but they are moving that decaying matter and preserving that energy from that dead carcass into a higher level, of trophic level. And so, you know, they're preserving that energy and then something else is going to come along that's even higher than them and consume it. And it's, it's maintaining the energy instead of decomposing back into the soil going back through your, you know, primary producers and then your primary consumers and stuff. And so it's kind of a step that, or it eliminates some of those steps. Um, And then you have to think about the, you know, nutrient cycling. We're preserving energy or transferring energy into the higher trophic levels. And then we're also cycling the nutrients a lot faster through that, that system as well. So, with these different scavengers and the role that they play in an ecosystem, I'm curious, um, what kinds of threats are these scavengers facing? I mean, other than predation, what can, let's say I was like a small American burying beetle, what's going to interrupt my lifestyle? The American burying beetle was uh, previously listed as endangered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and some of the factors that were uh leading it to be endangered or causing it to be endangered um, included habitat fragmentation. uh, That's a big one or even degradation. So just, uh, you know, they don't have the same type of cover on the, the prairie floor. That doesn't make sense. You're you're shaking your head like it does. Okay. Totally makes sense. Okay. So they don't have as much, um, you know, like maybe the prairie ecosystem has been altered by lack of fire, too much fire, overgrazing. All of those factors are contributing to, you know, their habitat degradation. Um, Another factor that's really important to them is the availability of food. So if you're already altering the habitat, that's going to be altering the um, wildlife that is already there and maybe it's not a preferred type of carcass maybe they're too large of a carcass like deer or you know cattle or something that's a little big for a carry-on beetle to be able to bury Um, and so you could be altering all of those things and a lot of the issues with them or that they've been facing are anthropogenic so uh, humans cause a lot of those factors and uh, changes to the environment Um, but they currently were delisted to threatened in October of 2020. And a lot of that was from efforts of going out and surveying where are these populations at? Um, You know, is it a stable population? Are they declining? What can we do um, as people, as humans to help boost this population? And so um, I was reading about um, a zoo down in Missouri and I'm forgetting the name of the zoo, but they were actually, they had a breeding program 
um, for American burying beetles, and they have been releasing them into the wild, and now they are becoming more stable in the state of Missouri where they, they weren't before. That's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. When my brain totally didn't go, when I was thinking of threats to scavengers, I was thinking more along the lines of um, like our non-lead hunting ammunition. Oh, like we talked about yeah. with uh, Leland Brown and Chris Parrish. We talked about um, non-lead hunting ammo and the role that it can play in the ecosystem and how um, scavengers can sometimes consume those lead fragments and that it can have major impacts. Is that something that we see here in Kansas as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I literally have under my notes um, pollution and part of that is poisoning. Mm. So um, we have to think of, I always think of DDT and biomagnification. And I feel like, you know, if you're interested in biology, you you understand biomagnification and those those issues. And the same thing happens with uh, the, the easiest one that I could think of was poisoning of prairie dog towns. Um, so that is going to directly influence your raptors and any other organisms that are going to be eating the prairie dogs. And if the prairie dogs um, die above ground, you know, that's going to attract some scavengers and therefore they're being poisoned by proxy. And so um, that's a definite threat. Um, and then I did. I had uh, lead bullets and, and ammo. Mm-hmm. And that's that's another one. You know, if you're killing animals with lead bullets and not picking up the carcasses, they're absolutely going to swallow that lead. Huh. Well, and speaking of our human impact as well, I think of um, like roadkill or when an animal of natural causes dies, like in your front yard, for example, most people see that and think, hey, you know, it's not a great look to have a dead possum in my front yard. And they might dispose of that in a trash can. They might bury it in their yard. And in that instance, we're taking away that opportunity for scavengers to find and feast upon that carry-on. And so I'm curious, is there like a large impact from humans there? Yeah, I think so. Um, removing that food source and then also think about where a lot of roadkill happens on the road. So we're already putting in that accidental death um, as a threat because how many times have you seen a dead vulture on the side of the road? They're not a fast flying bird. They can't get up into the air very quickly. And so if you're driving 70 miles an hour, you're likely going to hit that bird if you're not paying attention. And so that's another uh, huge threat, I think, especially in America. Um, And another one that I found very interesting, and I don't know that it's as much culturally in America, but like other um, countries, uh, vultures are highly associated with death. And so they have that fear and that stigma. And if you fear and don't understand something, um, you're going to attack that thing, you know, whether it be another person, whether it be an animal. Um, You see that with like orangutans too. they're, They're scared of them. They don't fully understand um, the species, and so they attack them. And it's the same with vultures. And vultures are not um, a, a bird that can be hunted or shot for no reason. I mean, they're protected. Correct. Yeah. So I, I think that's also why we don't have that issue here in America mm-hmm. as much, or like un- the United States, I should say. Um, but in countries where it's a little harder to uh, monitor um, those actions, I think there's a little bit more of that that goes on, then maybe we understand or fully can, you know, quantify here. Right. Um, And the other thing, too, that I I found really interesting, because I've been reading up on them, um, is the vulture populations in India. I know this is in America, like in the United States or Kansas, but um, in like the, when the uh, Indian population, like, exploded in like the 1980s and stuff, so did their, their cattle uh, populations and their water buffalo, which cattle and water buffalo are sacred um, animals to them. And so they don't eat them like we do here in the United States. And so they let the cattle um, die naturally of old causes, whatever it is. And they, they really put a lot of care and veterinary care into those animals. And so um, a researcher, and I apologize, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, Vibhu Parkash, um, he is a vulture researcher in, or specialist in India, and um, in like 1990, he went out and was doing these surveys and these counts, and just like the vultures that he studied to get his degree, the populations were just like gone. 
and it was a huge mystery and like what is going on we have no idea and it ended up being um, from a medicine called diclofenic and what it that medicine is used for it's used in humans or it like it was it was released in the 1970s and it was used as an anti-inflammatory and it was supposed kind of like a pain management and it was supposed to replace like aspirin and be a safer alternative to that medicine and what ended up happening is that um, the oh veterinarians so veterinarians actually started using it in animals and because cattle and water buffalo are sacred, they're going to do anything and everything to ease the aches and pains of those animals because to them, um, again, I don't want to be like offensive to their culture or anything, so hopefully I'm explaining this right. But to them, I think they consider like the cow to be like the mother that provides them milk. It provides them all of these, you know, benefits. Um, and so what they would do is they started using the cheap medicine diclofenic as a treatment for cattle and all these birds were dying mysteriously and what ended up happening is they would eat so vultures work in like a flock they all divulge on the organism at once and so if they if a bunch of vultures say 50 vultures eat off of one contaminated um, cow or water buffalo then 50 birds are likely going to die um, and what happens is their kidney function essentially shuts down and they can't uh, process, they basically get gout. So they can't process, process the uric acid and that builds up in their system and they essentially die from it. Mm. Um, and so they've really put in strict, you know, regulations on that in India and that is helping and they're doing release programs and stuff. And again, that's something we don't really have here in America but it's just interesting that when the vulture population started declining, all of the dead cattle and cows were building up because they're not going to. The Indians are not going to do anything with it, and that was incre increasing um, disease transmission to humans. They were actually uh, getting humans were getting arsenic from the dead cattle or contaminated cattle because they were handling the dead animals or whatever, and it, it can be transmitted through cuts and abrasions in your skin. So yeah, it, it, vultures actually play well. Scavengers in general they play a huge role in our ecosystem, and we as humans feel like very detached, especially in like a first world country, very detached from nature. But we are very much part of that ecosystem still, and they play a critical role in our health and the health of our ecosystem. Wow. And our food webs are so complex and so interconnected, and it can be really hard to understand the extent of the impact we're having by making one little change. And so that's just a perfect example of how science continues to try to understand those relationships so that we can do better by our natural world and uh, you know, mitigate those things from happening. Thanks for sharing that, Deidre. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I I had no idea until I was kind of looking into some of this for the podcast. And that was just, I knew that, you know, um, some of the Asian countries like in Africa, India, they were having declines in their vulture populations, but I didn't fully understand why until I read an article about, you know, Indian vultures. And then in like Africa, a lot of locals will poison large carcasses um, to poison lions and, you know, other large predators to, you know, get rid of them. It's a dead carcass. Their vultures are going to descend onto that and it just wipes out droves of their vulture populations and species. So... So we've spent a lot of time talking about vultures and we talked a little bit about those beetles, but I'm curious... Um, some other scavengers that maybe just dabble in scavenging, like where do we draw the line as far as this is a scavenger versus this is a very opportunistic raccoon? I don't know exactly where you would draw the line for that, but I think you have to divide them into the facultative and the obligatory uh, scavengers. And so facultative scavengers are anything from like your crows, um, skunks, Bald eagles. Bald eagles, yes. Um, coyotes, if they find a dead carcass that's relatively fresh, they're going to eat on it. Um, and I think you have to look at the obligatory um, scavengers. Like your vultures, they don't have talons like your raptors. They can't go hunt their own food. And so to me, 
that's more of a scavenger or like your American burying beetle. They have to have that dead carry on to survive. Um, whereas your facultative scavengers, they're just doing it as an opportunity. Does that, that kind of answer it? Like, yeah, definitely you know, more of a narrow niche there versus just taking advantage of what comes your way. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of times we think of, uh, for example, coyotes are coming to mind. We think of them as omnivores. They eat berries and they eat meat. But there is that small caveat of, you know, I am going to scavenge when I can. Okay, Flatlanders, so if you haven't lost your lunch yet, stay tuned in because we're jumping into the next thing. Deidre was sharing a really interesting story with us before we hit record today, and we decided we have to share that with you. So Deidre, do you want to tell us the story? Yes. Um, so I love this story, um, and I'm going to try and present it as kind of a mystery to you guys. So let's see if you can figure out uh, where we're going with this. It's called the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. So in Bath County, Kentucky, a farmer and his wife... Um, we're outside doing their normal chores and everything, and all of a sudden they experienced small pieces of meat falling from the sky. It was a huge mystery at the time. Nobody knew what was going on. Huge spectacle. So, like, they had reporters coming out. All the neighbors showed up, and they reported that the meat had this kind of odd smell to it. It just they <laughs> okay, couldn't they no. couldn't they couldn't you know describe the smell it was just odd it was like off and they were um there were really small fine pieces of meat you know kind of like snowflakes is how they described it as like falling down like snowflakes and then there were larger chunks that were like i think one of them was measured to be about a hand like length long and about two inches wide what yeah okay so already my expectations have been blown because i thought this was going to be a cloud with a chance of meatball situation like just very obvious Roasts falling out of the sky. <laughs> Roasts falling out of the sky. That sounds great. Yeah, and so, like, <laughs> I love that. Um, but it was just, like, how, what exploded in the si a sky? You know, what? why is this meat falling down? And so some people took it upon themselves to collect some of the meat as samples and send it off to universities. And this is the one that really gets me, and I want to know your guys' opinion. Some people decided to eat the meat, and some people said it tasted like mutton. Others said it tasted like venison. Would you eat meat that had fallen from the sky? I think I'm going to take a hard pass on sky meat unless like, it gets approved via the universities to where the samples were sent. But a sky meat is a little sketchy to me. <laughs> sky meat. Um, I don't know. There's a weird part of me you that's like, I would eat it. Yeah, you would. <laughs> I probably just, would. Just like one of if the it's little like a more... snowflake, I'd be like... Yeah, not that y'all needed a sound effect. I'm just sorry. like that. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I can't figure out what this would be. So there's meat raining from the sky. It's in people's yards. We're talking one to three inches of meat accumulation in your yard. Yeah. What? Well, I don't know. I made that up. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was that much, but it was definitely like over their farm, and it was just like a good little showering of meat. And they said it was like hanging off of their fence. So there was a good amount of it, right? Um, and there were some crazy hypotheses that were being thrown around by those university professors. Like one thought um, that it was frog spawn that had been picked up from like the pond. But that was obviously like if you have a huge chunk of meat that's like three inches long and, you know, like two inches wide, like that's not frog spawn. Um, another one thought that it was like horse lung tissue. Which is just insane to me. I have no idea. Well, how would that get in the air? Exactly. Okay. So what happened um, with all of this speculation and stuff? And remember, this is the late 1800s. So, you know, we're still learning things and learning the scientific method and stuff. Yeah. But what researchers think is the most likely explanation is that it was a flock of vultures flying over the farm one of them involuntarily or voluntarily vomited and as a reflex reaction because, oh, you're vomiting, I need to vomit too. Oh my gosh, we're under attack. A bunch of vultures vomited while flying over the farm. And so people were consuming rancid that was you Lindsay. i just said i would eat that <laughs> exactly that's why i wanted to know what your opinion was before i you said set this. me up i did i'm sorry but 
It was just like who, and that would explain the off, off taste and the smell of the meat. It's because it was coated in their acid, in their stomach acid. And I mean, there's no, it's the 18, late 1800s. We have no like proof of this, but that has to be like the most obvious explanation of what happened. So no instances of this have ever been reported since then that you are aware of? Not that I'm aware of. The, um, I don't know that I've ever heard of any other meat shower. Um, Lindsay's looking it up right now. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Well, the thing is, is that one, I forgot that it was set in 1876. So when I Googled this, I really wanted some pictures of what was happening there. <laughs> there are some pretty fantastic drawings. I, I believe it. I didn't Google it like that, but I would, I'm sure there's some good drawings out there. Cause I mean, um, another one that really got me is they thought a, a reporter um, thought that it was from like an ass, like a meteor shower, like a meteor uh, shower. No, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just making gosh. that fun. But um, they, they like tied it to the stars and like had like, you know, the meat came from a meteor shower from the sky. And it's like, well, that's obviously not an explanation. So there was just a bunch of crazy stuff being thrown out there. How fascinating. I am intrigued and disgusted at the same time and we need to congratulate you Deidre because this is the first like true crime crossover episode I feel like we've had nature version and uh, th- this is the first mystery that's ever been posed to us so thank you for oh bringing gosh. that on the Flatlander today you're welcome okay so we've talked a lot about scavengers on this episode I want to talk a little bit more about carrion yeah and Carry on falling from the sky, that sounds like kind of an odd accident, like involuntary vulture vomit. But now I want to transition to a species that voluntarily uses that nasty smell associated with carry on to attract some of its friends. DJ, talk to us about that. Yeah, so I think what you're alluding to is uh, our carry on uh, flowers or plants. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I really enjoy carnivorous plants, um, and they actually, carnivorous plants actually eat the animals that they attract. Um, my understanding of the carry-on uh, flowers is that they're strictly just trying to attract the insects for pollination. What carry-on flowers do, um, they mimic the smell and appearance of rotting animal carcasses, And that attracts the uh, carry-on feeding insects um, that normally feed on the dead animals. And they use dead animals as brood sites. So that can include, uh, um, let me see, flesh flies, blow flies, house flies, um, and some beetles. So like, you know, we talked about the American bearing beetle. There are a ton of other insects that use um, dead animals and carry-on as a source of food or a place to lay their eggs. The carry-on flowers evolve to attract these insects, and the insects visit the flowers and mistake them for the dead animals. And in some cases, they can even lay their eggs on the flowers and kind of be duped, if you will, into transferring the pollen from one flower to the next. And so this is, you know, we think back of the nice, pretty flowers that we like. They're tricking insects to come hey i'm a big landing pad come take my pollen well if your method is to attract you know insects that like dead and decaying animals you're gonna have to mimic that in some case or in some way and um what these uh flowers will do is they actually emit oligosulfides Um, And that is like the same odor of decaying flesh. And so they have somehow evolved, and I don't fully understand the research into this or the evolution of it, uh, but somehow the plants figured out if I release oligosulfides into the air, that is going to attract these animals. So carry-on flowers actually um, produce heat, and that's through... um, so they, they produce heat that's above the ambient temperature, and they do that through metabolic reactions. And um, there's some uh, discussion as to, you know, why the plants do this, but a lot of people think it mimics the heat um, production of decaying animal carcasses. We, you know, your compost pile, all those microbes starting to break down that organic material, it produces a lot of heat. And so the production of heat synchronized with the odor emissions um, is it's kind of suggesting that the flowers are trying to, um, 
use that use those mechanisms for attraction and trick the insects into thinking this is actually a dead animal a lot of carrion flowers really don't produce nectar or anything they have like little traps and stuff and so there's really no give and take or benefit so you know a lot of pollinators they get pollen they get nectar and energy sources the carrion flowers they don't really care they're just trying to get pollinated and so they'll a lot of them won't provide nectar or anything they just trap the insects um and the insects walk all through their pollen and then hopefully the insect will be attracted by another carry-on flower of the same species and that cross-pollination is going to happen. That's so interesting. What a unique, you know, we think of flowers as being these like beautiful, pleasant smelling things. And there are literally flowers out there that smell like a corpse, like rotting flesh. Yeah. There's literally a flower called the corpse flower. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the corpse flower is so cool. Yeah. It's very neat. I don't know enough about it to confidently talk about it so if you want to it's huge i have a photo um i took one as it was blooming and it's probably at its base almost as tall as i am oh wow uh this one that i had the pleasure of seeing as it was blooming smells real good by the way was at kansas state university at the um uh in the in the K-State Gardens, in one of the greenhouses, it's very isolated. It's only open to the public a couple times of a couple times a year when it's actually blooming, and it's usually pretty well like fenced off, so people can't just go in and look at it or disturb it because it is a very sensitive plant, and sometimes it takes 15, 20 years for it to even get to the point where it will bloom or just mature in general. So it's a pretty incredible plant. Um, we might be able to share a photo of one with this episode or somewhere on our show notes if you guys want to kind of get to know it a little bit better but it's a fascinating plant yeah and you bring up like how big it is and that's something um that i was reading about that a lot of uh we we don't know a lot about that why is there gigantism in carry-on flowers we don't know is the role to mimic the visualization of like this is a huge dead carcass because you think about the colors of a lot of those carry-on flowers are kind of those like purples and like pink so you know it kind of looks like that nasty um, decaying flesh look to it and so they're doing all of this mechano sensory cues to these insects and why is gigantism part of that you know that's a that's a research question if you know you're looking for something to to research yeah so <laughs> the takeaway is that we need more scientists researching carrion flowers yes or if a carrion flower expert wants to reach out that would be amazing because i would like to know more about them i am by no means an expert in them yeah i studied botany but we we like barely touched on carrion flowers so so some scavengers like flesh flies are actually used to help solve crimes and i'm thinking specifically of murders and i am by no means an expert on this but i was recently listening to uh, a great podcast the morbid podcast which is a true crime podcast and they talked about how research is being done on uh, body farms on controlled body farms which if you're not aware of what a body farm is please research that a little bit and uh, it's a really interesting scientific effort that's being made but researchers can actually look at the life stage of a critter like a flesh fly to determine basically how long that body has been exposed to the elements or potentially decomposing and that can help aid in um, potentially cause of death or time of death and give some additional information that could help solve a crime so scavengers are a really diverse um critter in our ecosystem and they can help us solve crimes they can help clean up our roadways and do a lot of things yeah um and i think that uh forensics is really interesting um i didn't i knew about body farms and i knew that they were looking at decomposition and you know insects and everything uh the other one that i find really interesting that they use in true crime are uh, diatoms and uh, drowned victims or victims that are found in water bodies uh, they can actually link the diatoms found in the lung tissue to a specific water body or like uh, some cases they find a uh, you know a body in water and they'll look at the lung tissue and it doesn't have diatoms at all so then they they know with concrete evidence that um, they did not you know die in the water and so it's it's just it's interesting not to turn this into a true crime podcast or anything I just find you know that that forensic uh, investigation and using nature and organisms to help us do that is fascinating it is. Mm -hmm. 
And so if our listeners do want to help protect scavengers, um, help make sure that our scavengers continue to live in a healthy way, what can our listeners do? I think the uh, biggest thing is to just become more environmentally conscious. Um, You know, I wouldn't suggest that you go out and try and capture capture vultures and release them from your home or anything like that's not okay Um, but just be more environmentally conscious when you're driving um, you know pay attention to the road don't just pay attention to other drivers pay attention to you know roadkill or um, are there vultures circling around it is there a hawk you know eating a snake or you know a rodent in the side of the road just just be aware Um, and I think try and make better choices for you know your what you what you consume try and make better uh consumer options yeah or choices okay um i think that kind of goes a that might be usually at the end of each episode we ask our guests to pose a challenge or a goal for our listeners i think that's mine you think so yeah that's kind of the vibe i was getting from you so yeah i would just put that out there i'm a big avid watch the roads you know, help turtles cross safely for yourself and the turtle. Um, you know, same with snakes. I, you know, a lot of people aren't going to do that themselves, but you don't have to hit every snake that you see on the road. Um, so just be, just be conscious of what you're doing and how your actions impact the environment. And one of the things I love about scavengers too, which it, I know it can be kind of a weird taboo topic because it is related to death, like you alluded to earlier, but scavengers provide us with a great opportunity to teach others, to teach our children about death and the role that it plays in our life cycles and the way that um, that energy continues to be recycled in our ecosystem. So I find that fascinating. And it, yeah, if you do have kids or friends that are a little bit uncomfortable with the topic, it can be a little bit spooky, scary, but scavengers are a great way to look at that and to see um, the benefits of that that life cycle. So yeah, cool one. like you said, everything is a cycle. There's a beginning and end and it just keeps going. Absolutely. So when you think about the future of either the future for scavengers or the future of wildlife conservation in general, what are you the most hopeful about? Is there new emerging science, new legislation, the rebound of a T&E species? What excites you, Deidre? Um, what really excites me right now um, is RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife um, Act. And, you know, if that comes through, um, there's a lot of conservation efforts being made for like our game species. But as we've been talking in this episode, our non-game species are just as important to be conserving and, you know, scavengers play a large role into that. And so if we have um, support for RAWA, then, you know, that's going to help give us more uh, funding to go out and do research and to start up these programs that are going to be helping um, these non-game species. And that's what I'm really excited for um, right now. Um, it's it's pretty forefront um, in the legislative process. So I've been trying to follow that as best as I can. So Absolutely. Well, Deidre, any last thoughts before our listeners before we end today? Any other meat raining stories you want to share with us? You know, uh, not off the top of my head. I just encourage everyone to stay curious. Oh, I love that. that. Awesome. Well, Deidre, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. For our listeners, if you are ever in the Pratt area, I encourage you to come and check out the Pratt Education Center and see Deidre's incredible contributions to that. And uh, those who came before her that managed that property in a way that is just so beautiful and educational. There's some awesome new fish exhibits if you haven't been in a couple years. So come check those out. It's a really great place to be. Uh, if you have any questions about today's episode, any follow-up thoughts for Deidre, give us a shout and uh, we'll be sure to connect you with Deidre and she can answer those questions. Deidre is heading out in the field soon for some bat surveys. Is that right? Yeah. So we are um, continuing our bat surveys. We're just counting, um, you know, uh, oh my gosh, wintering roosts, I guess. Yeah. We're just counting um, wintering roosts. We'll do maybe some maternity roost counts here um, when they start, uh, you know, taking care of their pups and everything. And this summer we'll actually, the main focus for me is going to be trying to find the checkered garter snake and the New Mexico thread snake in the Red Hills area. 
Deidre, I have a feeling that we're going to be following up with you on these topics. Or hiding in your truck so we can go with you. (laughs) I'm very excited about this summer because I have yet to see um, a living New Mexico thread snake in Kansas and a checkered garter snake at all. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, We're, you know, the latest, the last uh, survey, uh, or sorry, the last accounts of these species was like in 2020 in the Cimarron grasslands for New Mexico thread snake. And then the last checkered garter snake uh, sighting was in 2016. So they're definitely species that we need to learn more about. They're data deficient. And uh, that's our goal is to just go find them this summer. Gosh, well, stay tuned for a follow-up episode on the work that Deidre and her crew will be doing this summer because we'll probably have you back on. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. Thank you, Deidre, so much for joining us. It was a great episode. I know um, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of laughter, and it's definitely entertaining, that's for sure. Um, thank you, Flatlanders, for tuning in. And remember that flat is, is a state, state of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. Country.